a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time listener, first of all, welcome aboard. Thanks for giving it a shot. Maybe you're asking yourself, okay, what exactly can I expect? This guy's motto is revel in wrong think. What exactly is he trying to accomplish here? Well, thank you for asking, kind of. (laughs) I'll tell you, what I'm trying to accomplish is I am trying my best to encourage people to question it all. Everything. Including the stuff that I share. I mean, if I hold forth on a particular uh, subject and I share my opinion, of which I have many, I still want you to question it. I believe we live in a time of almost universal deceit. And we have extremely well-organized, well-established platforms from which that deceit is blasted at the public 24-7. And I'm not suggesting uh, a grand conspiracy so much as just there are a lot of competing voices out there. Some of them are doing their best to tell the truth, and some of them are doing their best to prevent you and me from seeing or recognizing the truth. Now, the bad news is nobody is going to ride to your rescue. There's no one who's going to come galloping up on a white horse and tell you, well, here's the, here are the sources that you can trust, and these are the ones that you can't. You're going to have to be a big boy or a big girl and basically pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become your own fact-checker. Which sounds daunting, but it's really not. It just uh, all it takes is is uh, developing a taste for truth and a desire for truth that outweighs your need for either approval or comfort. And if that doesn't make perfect sense, that's okay. Stick with me. I'll, I'll give you some great examples of what that looks like. Let me start by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible on a day to day basis. These are the folks who keep the wolf away from my door, so that I can spend my day finding the best most credible, principled information that I can then share with you. But, hey, even then, I'm telling you, don't take my, don't take my word for it or don't just believe because, well, I said it. It must be true. you got to think these things through for yourself. These sponsors include Dixie Chiropractic, also HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, what crazy times we live in. And, and I have to, I, can, I, can I share something with you? This is, a new project has launched. I'm excited for it. It's, uh, it's uh, a new video cast that I'm doing twice a week in conjunction with the Idaho Freedom Foundation. And uh, I, I am so honored to have the opportunity to do this. It's called Nowhere to Hide. Hold for applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. But uh, my my goal here is I go through news stories each week. And this is particularly relating to Idaho, both local and state media. And I try to find examples of of bias. And, you know, if you've been if you've been, you know, awake for any time, you realize, well, that shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> you know, Just well, pull open the newspaper. and Let's see what, what they have to say. But here's the key. And, and I'm saying this because I know that right now there are some journalists who are tuning in for the first time and trying to say, well, okay, well, who exactly is this guy? Um, and I want you to understand, my goal is is definitely to call out bias and to correct bias. 
but I want to do so in such a way that I'm not uh, feeding more anger into an already ugly situation because there's a lot of vitriol and a lot of that bias is is, uh, nothing short of contempt. In fact, uh, I was looking at <clears throat> my Twitter feed over the weekend and noticed, wow, I've got uh, I got a number of new people following me and, and, and coming on board here. And then I realized, ooh, the reason they're doing this is because they're they're doing opposition research. And it's it's because they they've kind of been told, well, hey, you know, Brian is gonna be calling you guys out on your nonsense and and so they're they're wondering what exactly is being unleashed here? Am I a pit bull, you know, there to chew on their ankles and make them miserable? And so I want, I want them to hear it from my mouth. No. My job is not to, to beat you into submission or to humiliate you. My job, first and foremost, is to encourage people to think more deeply about the subjects in front of them. And that's going to include sometimes questioning what the media is telling us. And now if you're a part of that media and you feel like, well, that's attacking us, I, I don't know what to tell you other than, Sometimes that's a that's a very uh, necessary thing to be willing to question what is being said. And uh, for a lot of my friends who work within mainstream media, uh, there's there's a there's a consensus there, an echo chamber, if you will, that believes. But how could anybody see things as different? It's it's an interesting phenomenon. But I but I've seen with my own eyes. I've experienced it with my own eyes. The the you know, looking down their nose and the, the contempt that they have for people who fall outside of their particular, you know, political subset. Well, I'm not a political animal. In fact, I'm, I'm becoming more and more a political agnostic simply because I think it just leads to way too much division. So my goal isn't to, to make people feel bad or think that uh, they need to be hooted and and jeered as they walk down the street. People don't need to be throwing trash at them. At the same time, if there are blatant distortions or omissions or even falsehoods that are being promoted through mainstream media, I want to call them out. And I'll do it as gently and as diplomatically as I can, but I also want to point out that, you know, it's it's not necessary to operate from that enemy-driven kind of thinking. So I'll let you make up your own mind. You may still think, well, this guy is, you know, as full of it as a Christmas goose. And that's fine. That's, that's utterly fine. I came, to, I came to peace with the idea that not everybody has to agree with me a long, long time ago. Because I don't have all the answers. And there's every possibility in the world I could be wrong on a given subject. The one thing I do have, though, is I have a desire to speak the truth. And I mean, I take that seriously. Like, I believe that... I think I'll stand accountable before God someday as to whether were you truthful, were you honest in the way that you approached, you know, the the content that you put out there through the various platforms from which you work. And I take that very, very serious. I I I don't want to mislead people, but I definitely want to inspire them to think more deeply, more clearly, more independently about everything that is going on around us. So. With that disclaimer and with that explanation, let's move into the show. What do a collapsing dollar, a collapsing global economy, um, uh, lacking energy supplies, um, disrupted food and supply chains, what do they all have in common? Yeah, I know. It's uh, Well, let's see. It's all going on at once right now. Here's the crazy thing. I think if you were to find a common thread, they all seem to be suffering from some kind of 
engineered chaos at the same time. Now, isn't that very strange? Why would that hit all at once? Is it just, is, is there someone we can blame this on? I don't think that's the way to go about it. I would refer you to a recent article by the Good Citizen Substack. The chicken, the egg, or the spooks match. Which came first? And this is, uh, this starts with the intentional economic energy, food supply chain, and dollar-controlled demolition is how the good citizen puts it. He says, yesterday I, tr- I b- briefly touched on Uncle Sam's inflation from the first-person perspective of Uncle Sam's inflation. By the way, that's an excellent, excellent piece. The job of managerial state functionaries is to convince the American people of an alternate reality, not to believe their lying eyes about things like Ukraine, Putin, gas prices, everything prices, vaccidents, groomers, disinformation, white supremacists, guns, drooping celebrity faces. And in the USSA, reality is a narrative production based on whatever the government says it is. Well, 91 days ago, the good citizen says, I wrote all about this engineering chaos and pain as the scorched earth portion of this great reset agenda. The article is linked here. It's called World Economic Controlled Demolition. Just a quick excerpt from that. We've reached the point, or we've reached the economic destruction phase of the management's silent war plans. The lockdowns that destroyed millions of small businesses over two years for a sniffles bug weren't enough. Currency inflation from printing trillions isn't happening fast enough. It's time for the scorched earth period of the show, the set your own house on fire part of the reset. Now, I'm not suggesting that you you have to believe this, but as you look around you and you see some of the, the cascading failures that are building around us on a day-to-day basis, doesn't it at least make you wonder? Is this connected? Could this and and, and frankly, as I look at, at the, the various challenges that we're facing, I mean I feel this every time I stand there at the gas pump, every trip to the grocery store, I have to wonder, is this a result of policies? that have been undertaken with the intention of uh, putting the squeeze on people to, for whatever reason, you know, to make us more compliant, to remind us why we really need, you know, the the folks in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm going to tap the brakes here. We've got to take a very quick commercial break. When we come back, I'll share some more from The Good Citizen. But here's the question I'd like you to ask yourself. You don't have to don a tinfoil hat in order to ask this question. What if there was a deliberate method to this madness? Someone was planning this. Who would benefit? How would they benefit? What would it, what would it likely do to the rest of us? What if? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to recognize the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. This is a great resource if you are one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly if you're going to land in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. You really should talk to Heather. Her and her team have years, I mean decades, of experience in the lending industry. They know what the borrowers need. They know what the lenders need. And they have the clout to make things happen when time is of the essence. Now, you can call her at 435-703-4522. 
If you're in St. George, her office is at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Back to the uh, to the excellent article by the Good Citizen on their Substack account, the chicken, the egg, or the spooks match. Now, talking about this this great reset agenda, and and by the way, this is not some shadowy conspiracy. This is stuff that's right out there in the open. The Davos crowd has been very open and very vocal about what they're trying to accomplish. You look at some of the leaders who uh, have been put in place. They brag about having people in place in, in various uh, governments and in presidential positions and parliamentary positions. I think probably the, their front man, the, the little dictator, uh, Justin Trudeau, is, is possibly one of their, their proudest and most apt pupils at this point. But you have to wonder, what's it all about? Now, personally, I think it's, it's about control. It's about, about shifting you know, the, the, where, where the levers of power are and taking power away from the common citizens and putting it into the hands of fewer and fewer oligarchical types. If that's a big stretch, I get it. Nobody wants to consider that. But at the same time, look at what's going on with us, with, with the, the, our inability to, to meet our energy needs, with the continuing inflation that's eating away the, the purchasing power of every single dollar you have. I mean, if you looked at your retirement accounts lately, how's that making you feel? Could that force you into somebody else's, playing someone else's game? If you got desperate enough, and this is one that, that is, is kind of hitting home for me, the, the good citizen points out the FDA is now ordering the culling of tens of millions of chickens, turkeys, and ducks for bird flu while using the infamous PCR tests, which were never meant to diagnose anything. So if you ever needed a clue who will survive their future, the good citizen says look no further than the people they're trying to demonize or trying to scare. Just looking at a couple of headlines here. Backyard chickens could be canary in coal mine for latest bird flu outbreak in the U.S. That's from the Oregonian. Here's one from uh, Health Harvest or Harvest Public Media. As bird flu sweeps across the U.S., even small backyard flocks are at risk. Here's another one. Are your backyard chickens at risk from avian flu? Here's what to know. Now, the good citizen says, look, the government has ordered the media to blame it on backyard chicken coops causing the spread of the virus to somehow jump to large agricultural producers as part of their agenda to demonize and scare self-sufficient small farmers and homesteaders. And this mass culling has partly been responsible for sending the price of chicken and eggs up 30 to 40 percent. Over 40 million birds have been culled in the U.S., another 40 million in Europe. And then there's this headline, Nationwide Bird Flu Outbreak Leads to Online Conspiracies. I think we've actually reached the point where a lot of these conspiracies are just the matter of people noticing things that they weren't supposed to notice and saying something about them. How dare you believe that? But uh, based on what I've seen over the last couple of years, you know what? The conspiracy theorists, their batting average is really good compared to what they are saying or what they are seeing and saying something about and what comes to pass. The difference between it being a conspiracy theory and being a fact that we've all known all along is down to about two months, by my reckoning. 
Now, the Good Citizen says the worst avian flu outbreak since 2014 just happens to coincide with the doubling of fuel prices, dollar inflation, supply chain disruptions, and a massive war in the breadbasket of the world kicked off by poking the Russian bear for eight years, who also happens to be a large oil exporter and the world's largest fertilizer exporter. Exporter, rather. Sanctions on the bear end up having detrimental boomerang effects on the U.S. and Europe's energy and food production. Quite a coincidence, wouldn't you say? There's incompetence and then there's malice. We're well beyond the coincidences of incompetence. And there's a list here of 95 coincidences over a year, including a fire ignited in the Smithfield uh, Foods pork processing plant in Illinois. Uh, Let's see, three-alarm fire at the Kellogg plant in Memphis. And, And seriously, 95 of these listed of different farms, different uh, food processing facilities in which, uh, you know, uh, there were were either fires or there was simply the destruction of turkeys or chickens, either through fire or sometimes through, you know, culling them for this this bird flu. Then we get down here, number 95 is irrigation water canceled in California, the number one producer of food in the U.S. and storage water flushed directly out to the Delta. And... This announcement just came over the weekend. There go the pigs. Due to meddling government policies designed to push people to plant-based lab-created meats. Smithfield Foods Incorporated, that's the largest pork producer in the U.S. And I believe they're owned by China. If I'm not mistaken, I think Smithfield Foods is actually owned by the Chinese. Closing an 1,800-person plant in California and shrinking the size of its, size of its herd in the region citing higher taxes, utility, and labor costs in California compared with other areas where it operates. Well, a good portion of my listening audience is in southern Utah. And their, uh, uh, their operations out there towards uh, Milford and Minersville in Beaver County, I think that's about a 250-person operation. They're also being shut down. Look, I don't pretend to know what it all means, but from my vantage point, it sure seems like, well... If we're going to get people to fall in line, we, we're going to have to squeeze them where it hurts. And that will be, you know, they're not just their pocketbooks, but their their bellies, people being able to feed themselves. And I'll come right out and tell you, I'm very skeptical about the idea that, well, you know, this uh, this bird flu is, is uh, something we're going to have to send inspectors around. Anybody who has backyard chickens, I think it will start with something like, in order to protect you and your chickens, you'll need to uh, make sure that your small flock, however small it is, is registered with the state. My advice would be do not do that. Don't register your flock because it's going to be an open invitation for the state to come in and say, yep, uh, we've looked at your birds and it looks like they have the flu too, so we're going to have to cull them. See, to me, this this feels like there is a great effort being put on to deny self-sufficiency to as many people as possible. Now, do you think it's any coincidence that the further you get away from the D.C. Beltway, the more awake people tend to be as to, to the true nature of the people who populate, and I'm talking the elected as well as some of the unelected functionaries that, that populate that Beltway area? I don't like to use the word hatred. Somebody else used this in an article over the weekend, and I was like, wow, that's there, there's, uh, there's a lot of truth to this. These January 6th hearings, you know, there's, there's lamenting among the political class. Why aren't people resonating with this? Why isn't this getting more of a bounce? Why isn't it moving the needle? And one of the answers that I saw from a commentator on Twitter was, 
You guys don't get it. It's because the the American people hate you guys. And the further you get away from Washington, D.C., the stronger that hatred is. Now, again, I'm not encouraging people, you know, the more you hate, the better a person you are. But I think that there's there's a disconnect from reality for a lot of the politicians and policymakers within the D.C. Beltway and sometimes even within state capitals. They don't understand. Well, why is it that people are so upset about this kind of stuff? Because for the most part, we are people who just want to be left alone to live our lives, to pursue happiness, to to peacefully go about enjoying ourselves and enjoying our freedoms. And there's a bureaucratic and, and political or ruling class that is determined not to let us do so. And it really feels as though they have ramped up their efforts to try to clamp down and show us who's in charge and remind us why we need them. The harder they squeeze, the more of us slip through their fingers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out for HSLAmmo.com. That's my friend Spencer Worthington. He is the founder of HSL Ammo. And let me tell you the great thing about uh, his uh, particular ammunition. I think it's true of all ammunition. If you are looking to convert money into skill, as in skill at arms, this is one of the things you're going to want to do is get get ammunition and get some training and become well-practiced. Now, some people have a mistaken idea that, well, if you're training, you know, then you're just, you're preparing for violence and you're, you're probably a violent individual. That's how I can tell people who have never had defensive firearms training. They, they tend to project their Rambo fantasies onto other people. People who've actually had the training understand there is a very, uh, there's a very respectable and necessary place for the personal firearm in modern society. And people who have training, especially because that training focuses not just on how, but when it is appropriate to defend yourself, they have options that the untrained do not have. Ammo is a key way to uh, turn your money into skill via training. HSL Ammo is one I would recommend as a way to get yourself skilled. Check out the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So I mentioned the January 6th uh, hearings. I haven't watched them myself. I, you know, if I want entertainment, I'm going to put something on Netflix. I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in watching a bunch of politicians emote about how frightened they were that, uh, that someone stood up to them. You know, their, their, their outrage is just a little too selective. And I think the political class is using these hearings to remind us that we really need them. But I'm, uh, I'm unconvinced. And I really appreciated the article I found from Caitlin Johnstone. The U.S. Empire acts like a textbook manipulative sociopath. I think you can apply this to, uh, to politicians at pretty much any level. But she really drives this home. She says, one of the great sources of distress in people's lives is that we don't get to be the narrator of other people's stories about us. That we don't get to control what other people are thinking and saying about the things we do and the kind of person we are. Now, she says, we've all been there in some way at some point. If he really knew me, he'd like me. If they'd understood, if they understood what I'd meant by that joke, they wouldn't have gotten offended. If she could see my heart and my intentions, she'd understand why I did what I did. 
No, no, that's not what happened. They're getting it all wrong, and it's making me look like the bad guy. Now, Caitlin says it's pretty normal to feel misunderstood or mischaracterized by the people in our lives from time to time. But there are some people who take that experience to very unhealthy extremes and respond to it in very unhealthy ways. People with an underdeveloped sense of empathy, like those with narcissistic and antisocial personality disorders, don't experience other human beings the way that normal people do. To whatever extent they lack empathy for others, they see them not as sovereign people, but as tools to be used to get whatever it is they want, whether that's power, wealth, sex, respect, etc. Now, this view of others tends to cause people who lack empathy to become manipulative because their interest in others is, is not in connecting with them, understanding them and helping them, but in using and exploiting them. And however perceptive and clever they are will determine how skillful they can be at manipulating people toward that end. For such individuals, she says, the inability to narrate other people's stories for them is experienced not as a sometimes painful but necessary reality, but as an intolerable obstacle which must be overcome. Finding ways to manipulate the thoughts people think in their minds about the manipulator, about themselves, and about others takes on a central role in their lives. This is one of the ways that you can spot a manipulator who lacks empathy in your life. They spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to influence your opinion of them, your opinion of others, and or your opinion of yourself. I'm this way and I do such and such. She's such a bitch. She's always blah, blah, blah. You're defective in this and that ways. You need me for such and such reasons. You wronged me in such and such ways. Caitlin Johnstone says a virulent manipulator's entire social existence revolves around influencing the narratives people have about what's going on in their circle in a way that benefits the manipulator. Influencing the thoughts they think to themselves and influencing the stories they're telling each other. Now, a narrative is a story. And often when people hear the word story, they think of a whole cloth work of fiction made up for the amusement of others. But the overwhelming majority of stories we experience are about our own lives and the lives of others, both in our own heads and in our conversations with people. So, Joe went to the store is a narrative, whether Joe did in fact go to the store or not. Joe is a jerk is a narrative, whether the arguments for Joe being a jerk contains factual claims or not. It's a description of an occurrence or situation, whether accurate, inaccurate, or a mixture of both. And this unambiguous relationship between narrative and truth, that's where the manipulator lives. They spend their days weaving tall spires of language and framing reality in a way which benefits them, using truth, half-truth, and falsehood as necessary. Filling people's minds with a vision of the world, or version rather, of the world, which consistently paints them in a sympathetic light, and their targets in an unsympathetic light. Because their lives revolve around manipulation, anything which poses an obstacle to their ability to manipulate is seen as a threat. Getting caught doing something gross which would make people less likely to believe the things they say in the future. Someone noticing that they're being manipulated and refusing to believe anything the manipulator says. Or worst of all, everyone they know starting to talk to each other about what a dishonest and untrustworthy manipulator they are. For the manipulator, being fully seen by everyone is one of the most frightening existential threats imaginable. You'll often see them projecting this fear onto others, threatening to expose the secrets of people they don't like, because for them that's one of the most terrifying threats that can be made. 
Now, she says the U.S. centralized empire is a giant macrochasm of this entire dynamic. It pours vast amounts of energy into narrative control in the form of propaganda, censorship, Silicon Valley algorithm manipulation, government secrecy, and the war on journalism, real journalism, like Julian Assange-style journalism. It weaves nonstop narratives about how great it is and how horrible its enemies are, and it fears being seen more than anything in the world. The vast globe-spanning power structure that is loosely centralized around the United States is a powerful military force and a powerful economic force. But its most potent weapon by far is its ability to control the narrative about what's happening in the world. The use of oligarchic media, Silicon Valley and Hollywood to manipulate public thought and thereby control the way people think, act, and vote at mass scale all around the world is unlike anything ever seen in any empire in history. Propaganda only works if you don't know it's happening. Censorship only works if it doesn't draw attention to the information being censored. The U.S. Empire's nonstop campaign to control the world's dominant narratives only works if it isn't in the spotlight of public scrutiny. This is why those who draw attention to these things are smeared, demonized, censored, marginalized, imprisoned, and worse by the managers of empire. I'm just going to pause for a second and say, does that not make sense, though? You look at uh, the way that uh, Edward Snowden has been hounded into exile. You look at the way that Julian Assange has been abused and imprisoned and is in the process now of being extradited to the U.S. on charges of espionage. Yeah, I think we we definitely have uh, a very manipulative government system that did not appreciate being shown for what it was. Caitlin Johnstone says, Manipulators hate to be seen, but if you ever find yourself in a relationship with one, your ability to escape depends upon your seeing them. This extreme clash of interests often brings up white-hot rage in the manipulator, which can be frightening and dangerous. And she says, I think humanity is entering that stage of the relationship with the U.S. empire. A manipulator who's just beginning to be seen by a few more pairs of eyes than it would like, causing flickerings of panic to begin to surface. Because once those eyes see what's hidden underneath the veil of narrative manipulation, they don't often look away. If anything, they tend to point and draw more attention to it. And so she says it's a scary time to be alive, but it's also fascinating, unlike anything that has ever happened on this planet before. In fact, she says, I look forward to finding out if we escape. So just to bring that home, that's, this is one of the reasons why this show, as well as many others like it, exist. I am here to aid and abet your escape from the mental prison which has been constructed around all of us largely without our awareness. And it starts with questioning those narratives. Please understand, that doesn't mean you have to agree with me. My belief system doesn't require people to agree with me for me to still believe that this is valid or this is truth. But if you're not questioning the narrative, if you're not questioning everything that is coming at you from whatever sources... You're you're taking a real risk of being not only deceived, but actually misled and possibly led deeper into bondage. I'm talking about a mental kind of bondage from which escape is very, very difficult. How do I I know or what makes me believe this is a possibility? I look at all the people who fell into line and went along with the narratives of COVID mitigation 
and freely gave away their lives, their livelihood, their freedom, their dignity, just because someone in authority said so. It's really disturbing, and once your eyes are open, you really can't shut them again. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Okay, hold on. If you have a seatbelt, you might want to fasten it. Make sure it's good and snug. I'm ready to go into some dangerous territory. Bumpy road ahead. Finding the middle ground on the current push to indoctrinate small children regarding gender identity or sexual identity is not exactly an easy thing. And then, look, I have a lot of friends who I think are are trying to do right. Look, they, they don't like to see people ostracized. They don't like to see people shamed or guilted. Um, a good friend who I deeply respect uh, is is very much a fan of uh, Pride and Prejudice, you know, the, uh, the, the classic novel by uh, Bronte. And I saw a, a meme over the weekend that, that she had shared that uh, said, uh, more pride, less prejudice with the uh, rainbow flag. And that's like, okay, that's an example of it, right? We're trying to find that middle ground. Where can we find a middle ground that doesn't involve, uh, you know, totally abandoning you know, the moral foundations of Western civilization, but at the same time, isn't unnecessarily demonizing and, and marginalizing people. But when it comes to indoctrinating children to gender regarding gender identity, sometimes that middle ground is going to be tough to find. And I'm going to share some pretty tough words from, uh, from Brandon Smith. He says, you know, it's not always the case, but there are times when social conflicts arise in which one side is fully correct and the other side is completely and utterly wrong. And he says, when it comes to the debate over trans rights and the exposure of children to trans ideology, the political left has no logical defense. They're wrong to the point of pure madness, and like most insane people, they choose to double down and triple down on their delusions anyway. Now, he says they do this because they must. Their entire identity is dependent on this new cult religion, a religion built around the worship of ambiguous personal perceptions, narcissistic self-worship, and an unhealthy obsession with sexual fetishes. He says the goal of the leftists is to normalize trans ideology within our culture. Not only that, but to make the ideology sacrosanct and protected from all rational criticism. Conservatives have long fought against this for a number of reasons, but there are two that are most important. Number one, the trans movement is built on a lie. Biological sex is the only scientifically proven identifier of men and women. Gender fluidity, as leftists present it, has no scientific basis in reality. There is no proof of its existence, let alone enough proof to warrant the notion that laws need to be introduced to defend it and censorship enforced to save it from bigotry. It is a fantasy fabricated by quack sexual scientists like pedophile advocate John Money with an agenda far beyond simple observation of behavior. He says the only legitimate science surrounding gender identity involves the study of an exceedingly rare psychological condition called gender dysphoria, known also as gender identity disorder. In other words, a mental illness. The psychiatric world has tried to move away from the word disorder in recent years, not because the label is inaccurate, but because leftists have put pressure on scientists to abandon objectivity in the name of political propriety. Number two, he says the perpetuation of this lie is ideologically motivated 
and is designed to upend our cultural foundations. The links between leftists today and communist Marxist tactics of the past are numerous, and the most important target of any communist or collectivist regime is the family, and specifically the next generation, meaning the children. Leftists sometimes refer to this as decolonizing gender, with the extended purpose of dismantling Western society and capitalism. Now, the Soviet Union and the East German Stasi were notorious for the extensive measures they would take to disrupt family cohesion, to make families distrust each other, and to even kidnap children and babies. Under the leftist state, children are considered property of the government. The movements of today greatly resemble the movements in Russia, China, and other communist nations in the early lead-up to an authoritarian takeover. They utilize the similar methods of creating mass division and undermining traditional values and principles. Once the target society is in chaos, the leftists swoop in to take control and rebuild it in a way that benefits them the most. Now, Brandon Smith says many analysts have already examined in great depth the issue of gender identity and debunked all of its premises. He says, I'm not here to argue about the lack of science behind the trans movement. There are bigger issues at stake. I will only say that it's bizarre how much money and effort are going into promoting the notion that transsexuals are far more common than they really are. Statistical estimates for people diagnosed with gender identity disorder range from 0.005% to 0.014% of any given population. However, it's important to note that there are many people lately that identify as trans that have not been diagnosed with gender identity disorder. Around 0.6% of the U.S. population claims to be transsexual. And this number is rising in the past few years. How is this possible? Well, he says it's important to realize that the trans movement is in fact a movement. In other words, it is an artificially engineered minority driven by political concerns and special treatment. This is why we often refer to these people as trans-trenders. Many of them join because they see an opportunity for personal gain and the chance to be a part of a club that will grant them a feeling of acceptance and success without any effort on their part. Now, there are certainly individual motives for becoming trans beyond the norm, but social conditions in the West in the past five years are the clear driver of the trans-trend. In a world where critical race theory is actually taken seriously despite its numerous inaccuracies, and LGBT concerns have been elevated to the top of the leftist oppression totem pole, it's important to realize that being a victim is big business these days. Gaining such status allows you to be hired for many jobs despite a lack of talent, lack of merit, or lack of previous success. There are endless nonprofit organizations dedicated to ensuring equal outcomes for minorities rather than equal opportunity. And finally, as a minority, it has become socially acceptable for you to blame all your failings on the system or patriarchy instead of being forced to take responsibility for yourself. Now, he says, if you're not an easily identified minority, then you're basically left out of the loop. You can always be a good ally, but you'll never get the goodies and the applause that others will get within leftist groups. That said, there's one magical way to cash in on the pity party. Just say that you are trans. The beauty of this scam is that anyone can do it, and it's impossible to prove a negative. No one can conclusively prove that you are not trans. The unprovable negative is one of the oldest propaganda books, or tricks rather, in the book. You can say that your gender identity is in your head and a product of your psychology, and since no one can get into your head to see if you're lying or merely insane, 
society gives you a pass to participate in the oppression Olympics. What leftists in the trans movement demand, essentially, is that the whole of our society accept the idea that far more people have gender dysphoria than is statistically possible or proven, and that we must all embrace this mental illness as if it is a legitimate minority that requires special protections and wider public conformity. We must change our behaviors and our culture to accommodate them. So he says, look at it this way. If a schizophrenic proclaims that he is Joe Biden, do we acknowledge and accept this as fact simply because he feels as though it's true and then give him a seat in the Oval Office? He says, wait, maybe that's not the best example. (laughs) If a schizophrenic claims to be a seahorse or an alien or Napoleon, do we accept his feelings as facts? No, obviously we don't. Why not? Because it's destructive for society to embrace madness and allow insane people into positions where they can dictate our cultural norms. Mankind has been shunning crazy people from greater society since the dawn of history. At the very least, we try to avoid giving crazy people access to influence over the tribe. We sometimes sent them off to huts in the woods and called them medicine men, but we generally kept children away from them. Western society has been manipulated into abandoning this vital principle of survival. Instead, we are giving mentally disturbed people immense power for fear of being called bigots. We're giving them so much power, in fact, that they now feel perfectly safe in targeting our children. Could you imagine, even 10 years ago, hearing arguments in favor of exposing kids to transgenderism to the point that they could be manipulated into absorbing sexualized content and participating in drag shows where they hand dollars to dancing men in bikinis? The acceleration of this climate is unprecedented, and the purpose behind it is villainous. And he says the real question here is what is it with the leftists and their obsession with targeting children? Everything about the trans movement and most elements of the LGBT movement are sex-related. Their entire identities revolve around who they sleep with and turning those habits into activism. And so he says this is about grooming and it's predatory, but it's not purely about pedophilia. In some cases it is, but the more prominent objective here is ideological grooming. Once a child's been indoctrinated to ignore logic and reason, there is no going back. They will now be a perpetual infant with perpetual dependencies and perpetual delusions. They'll be broken and incapable of taking on adult responsibilities. In other words, these children are being groomed to act as political slaves for the rest of their lives. I'll grant you, that's about as straight up as you're going to get it. No sugarcoating on the part of Brandon Smith. I have a link to his article. You can read it in its entirety. It's in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look. See what you think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think, which is kind of a code word, you know, for subversive thought. Or at least some people see it that way. So I guess I want to dispel any notions. Is this really about 
you know, encouraging people to engage in subversive thought. Let me put my cards on the table and you can decide for yourself. My goal as the host of this humble little program is to encourage you to break out of a mental prison that has been constructed around you and, frankly, around all of us for most of our lives. We're so used to it. We're so comfortable with it that we hardly even notice anymore that uh, those walls are pretty tall. And there are guards placed at various places to prevent us from straying off the reservation of approved opinion. But if you want to be a person who is capable of claiming and using and defending your natural rights and your freedom, you got to be able to think for yourself. And that means you got to think as clearly and independently as possible, and especially during times of crisis. Without putting too fine a point on it, I think we are living in one of those times. Just a thought. Hey, I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible, including Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner in St. George. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud to have them as a sponsor and encourage you to go to their website, DixieChiro.com. Specifically, Dr. Wagner has asked me to reach out and get his message to three different groups of people. Those who have had car accident injuries. If you have been in a car accident, you've had some injuries, talk to him. There is relief available, and you might even find that you can do this with no out-of-pocket cost, thanks to, to some of the various insurance laws that require coverage that will help cover that. Also, people with bulging herniated discs. Here's a $99 intro special with two treatments plus massage. Or if you're dealing with neuropathy, here's the Calmare treatment plus massage, $99. Again, that's DixieChiro.com. Or you can click on the link I provide under sponsors in my show notes. So here's a question to kind of get you thinking. This should strike home for anybody who's gassed up in the last 48 hours or so. Is the current administration purposely destroying reliable energy in the United States? Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel, a very thoughtful take on what's driving our forced transition to green energy. (laughs) Now, he he starts by asking, is the Biden administration purposely destroying reliable energy in the United States? Jordan says, I have no doubt in my mind that this is very much a deliberate undertaking. It's most certainly a controlled demolition, and it's causing unprecedented carnage to American economic productivity and prosperity. However, it remains unclear what exactly is driving the current administration to pursue this green transition policy. So he says, here's my take based on too many years of experience. Feel free to weigh in via the comment section operating in the swamp among this crowd. He starts with solar and wind scamming. Now, he says, no, you can't run a nation on solar and wind, but the people in charge of the power and the money want to pretend otherwise. The ESG, environmental, social, and corporate government movement, has become the perfect instrument for the cartelization of our ruling class. And it continues to prevent outsiders from challenging the regime-connected insiders in Wall Street and Washington, D.C., The green transition is the favored slogan for the ESG mafia to continue vacuuming up power and influence while making it virtually impossible for nonconforming individuals and businesses in America to deploy their capital successfully. Actually includes a tweet from uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Railroad investments make life life more affordable and convenient for Americans by improving our supply chains and providing useful travel alternatives. 46 projects in 32 states and D.C. will receive funding thanks to the infrastructure law. Wow, $386 million in rail infrastructure and safety grants. 
And then Pete Buttigieg also says to support the transition to electric vehicles, we must build a national charging network that makes finding a charge as easy as filling up at a gas station. By the way, I'm not I'm not hating on my friends who are driving, you know, electric cars. I know it's cool. Those of you cruising around in your Tesla, you've got a pretty cool car there. But did you see the news headline over the weekend? California, due to concerns about rolling brownouts, is asking the owners of electric vehicles not to charge their cars. That didn't take very long, did it? Just something to think about before you go and, uh, you know, invest in that environmentally, you know, sound car. Oh, look, here comes another train load of fuel for your electric car headed to the uh, power plant. <laughs> okay. Jordan Schachtel says enormously powerful regime-connected institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard with a combined $18 trillion in assets under management continue to appeal to the carbon scam because it forces compliance under the guise of saving the earth. He says nobody in these institutions or on the government side of things, the handful of somewhat serious level-headed individuals who work in the Biden administration actually believe in the climate hoax but they're happy to deploy it as a political weapon to protect the ruling class. Susan Rice doesn't believe in the climate hoax. Larry Fink doesn't believe in the climate hoax. It's all a giant boondoggle to protect their interests. Then he says we have the eco-justice warriors. The Democratic Party base has a significant percentage of true believers who are convinced the world will soon cease to exist due to climate change. Now, of course, there is no real evidence supporting that argument. Nonetheless, green transition rhetoric plays very well with this growing contingent, and it may inspire them to come out to the polls in November. These individuals and groups truly believe that humans are to blame for the harming of Gaia. In order to prevent the apocalypse, they tell us, we must largely cease to exist and eliminate our carbon footprint. If it means unaffordable, reliable energy, well, that's a feature, not a bug. Non-governmental organizations like the World Economic Forum the narrative and shop ideas shop of the ruling class, they popularize the infamous Build Back Better and the Great Reset slogans, presents itself as the organizational power behind the eco-justice warrior movement. But unlike the true believers, the WEF, similar to its ruling class comrades, leverages this movement to stay atop the global power hierarchy. Here's a tweet from Alex Epstein. This view that human impact is intrinsically immoral and inevitably self-destructive is destroying everyone's thinking about energy and making them blind to the obvious. Next, Jordan Schachtel talks about preventing monetary disaster. Inflation is soaring, monetary debasement continues at unprecedented levels, and the people who control the money, who are responsible for getting this country into this mess in the first place, are promoting the green transition to slow down consumption and therefore promote a means to avert economic catastrophe. Here's a picture from from Twitter of uh, a shanty. It looks, I mean, it looks like the favela in, in Brazil. The, the accompanying text says, by eliminating electricity, sewage, running water, heating, cooling, insulation, and solid foundations, scientists have designed your future house for the green transition. Scientists insist this is the only way you can do your part to fix the weather and stop CPI from rising. And then how about this one? You have to eat bug soy sludge, live in a shanty town, forsake electricity, have virtual children, 
not because you've been impoverished by inflation. You have to do it to fix the weather because you are the Earth's thermostat. A couple of interesting articles about having virtual children who don't exist, how it could actually, you know, satisfy that need to have kids without actually having little uh, carbon-producing rugrats, you know, around here, uh, leaving their carbon footprints all over everything. And, of course, we've, we've all heard about uh, 3D-printed meat-free steaks to edible insect meals, things that uh, apparently the World Economic Forum believes we could be adding and maybe should be adding to our kitchens by 2030. I'm sorry, but my daughter is raising a steer for 4-H this year. And if, if I wasn't committed to, uh, to beef as a source of protein before, I certainly am now. Even though I've really come to love her steer, whom she just named Toast Malone, I, uh, man, I have the deepest respect for the people who produce beef, the ranchers and, and the, the dairy farmers and so forth. Oh, my word. Bugs. Mm. they're not going to be on the menu until until we are down to some really desperate times. Justin, or rather, Jordan Schachtel says, look, in short, all of these forces have adopted the Marxist adage that the ends justify the means. So according to this doctrine, it's okay to lie to people in order to bring about utopia. And his point is that all the major forces behind the green transition movement don't actually care in the slightest about the environment. Maybe you noticed that when all of their, uh, you know, hundreds of jets were flying to Davos for the latest meeting of the World Economic Forum. Oh, yeah, they came in a very eco-friendly way. Not. He says those with genuine interest in enforcing the green doctrine, the socially inept or the scientifically inept, rather, eco-justice warriors. Well, they're just merely useful idiots for power-hungry monsters. I mean, agree or disagree. It does raise some interesting possibilities. You can check out the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Hey, while you're there, subscribe, and I'll drop you a copy of those notes in your email inbox each and every day I do this show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I appreciate you giving me a chance to bend your ear, even if it's just for a short time. Thank you for considering and uh, taking a deeper look at some of the topics covered in today's program. Ready to uh, venture into some slightly uncomfortable territory? All right, let's go there. The uh, televised January 6th committee hearings, little more than the Americanized version of a Soviet show trial going on right now. I have made a conscious effort. I I really don't. I'm not going to watch. I'm not interested in what they have to say. It seems to me that this is just a transparent effort to remind us why we need all these very important people in Washington and why we should be on board with them to punish anyone who disagrees with them. Yeah, not going to go there. But I do appreciate Stu Tarlow writing for AmericanThinker.com who says, you know, there was really only one surprise in the January 6th TV show trial. He says, okay, I watched it. And if there's anything about the first of the so-called hearings on the alleged insurrection of January 6, 2021, that surprised me, it wasn't the predictably kangaroo court nature of the affair or even the Democrats brazen lying and selective omissions. He says, what managed to surprise me was the media's complicity. 
It certainly didn't surprise me to see the same video clip that had been played at President Trump's second impeachment trial. That was the one showing Trump urging demonstrators to march to the Capitol. But this one was conveniently edited to omit his telling them to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. He says, I wasn't surprised by the complete lack of subtlety in the way the cynical purpose behind this theatrical production was revealed. Rather than even purporting to let the people watch and draw their own conclusions, the folks putting on this duplicitous production repeatedly uttered statements that would have raised objections in an actual trial because they assumed facts not in evidence and certainly not yet proven. Objections would also have been raised for leading witnesses. And there was also the fact that there was no opposing counsel. Certain questions of witnesses were conspicuous because of what the interlocutors never asked. He says, I kept waiting, futilely, for a witness to be asked, and what manner of weapons did you observe these insurrectionists carrying or employing? Despite the repeated characterization of the day's events as deadly, only one person was unquestionably killed, and that was Ashley Babbitt, a veteran of 14 years in the Air Force, shot by a Capitol policeman. Neither her name nor her death was mentioned in the hearing. Now, he says, I wasn't even surprised at at, uh, Democrats' unity in perpetuating their narrative about the events of January 6th, namely that the evil Donald Trump orchestrated an attempted violent overthrow of our government. Nor was I surprised that ostensible Republicans and supposed erstwhile Trump loyalists had been trotted out in an attempt to, to lead a nonpartisan artifice to the proceedings with Liz Cheney, whose name also ri- almost rhymes with chicanery, at the forefront. No, he says, what did surprise me, though, was how thoroughly corrupt, complicit, and in cahoots with the Democrats and how thoroughly on board with this charade America's so-called journalistic establishment has revealed itself to be. Talking heads across all channels lined up to parrot the talking points and reinforce the narrative every one of them having apparently received the same memo and having apparently sworn the same loyalty oath. Having observed for some time the way in which news is managed, he says this shouldn't have surprised me, but the sheer seamlessness of the way the Democrats and their committed propagandists coalesced to advance a common agenda was, in its way, rather impressive. Like the Democrats, the so-called journalists have abandoned any subtlety or pretense about their loyalties or their agenda. They are masters of propaganda who would make Dr. Goebbels look like a mere tyro, and they're past caring who knows about it. As Michael Savage has often said, the fourth estate is now the fifth column. Now this does raise the question, was January 6th a Reichstag moment? He says, I remember listening to the way the events of January 6th were reported at the actual time they were happening. And while my own cynical nature had already expected the Democrat regime to stage some sort of Reichstag moment, a false flag op calculated to discredit Trump and his supporters, one alleged occurrence in particular convinced me that while genuine Trump supporters had been caught up in the storming of the Capitol, the breaching of the barricades, and the breaking and entering had been calculated, provoked, instigated, fomented, and enabled by agents provocateur possibly even members of some of those three-letter agencies that had traditionally seemed incorruptible and beyond reproach. And he says, and that alleged occurrence, as I noted it at the time, was this. Juan Williams, that genius and paragon of modern journalism, is reporting that mobs breaching the Capitol, characterized as Trump supporters, have entered Mitch McConnell's office and have taken down the American flag and put up a Trump flag. Excuse me? 
Does that sound like something patriots and people who revere America and its constitution would do? Or does it sound like a Reichstag moment, a literal false flag op perpetrated by Antifa and its ilk? For anyone who needs a historical refresher, Hitler, the recently appointed chancellor, blamed the communists for the February 27, 1933 Reichstag fire, an arson attack on Germany's parliament. He then used the event to consolidate his power, invoking an act that abolished freedom of speech, assembly, and privacy, legalizing surveillance of telephone calls and mail, and suspended the autonomy of federated states. He had some 4,000 people arrested by his stormtroopers, party members whom Hitler had enrolled as auxiliary police to infiltrate existing law enforcement, all for the protection of the people and the state. That conveniently timed act of arson, whether perpetrated by the Nazis or merely exploited by them, enabled Hitler to fundamentally transform Germany. Stu Tarlow says, Juan Williams' claim, like the political theater piece to which we retreated Thursday night, pegged the needle on my BS meter right into the red zone. Now, I understand that for, for most people, that's going to be like, wow, that's pretty cynical. you got to really have some hardcore cynicism to, to see things in that light. I don't think he's wrong, though. And, and I would agree that it's, it is both remarkable and a little bit discouraging to see just how deeply compromised a once-independent press has become. But think about the way that the press reports on things. And I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, so I understand there may be exceptions, there might be news outlets out there that really do strive to, to be objective and to be fair in what they're, they're doing. But for the most part, you will be hard-pressed to find mainstream media, and I'm talking press organizations from local TV and radio and, and newspaper stations right up to the national press and cables, cable networks, rather, that don't in some way report things in a way to, uh, to support the status quo or to justify the status quo as if, well, no, no, this is, this is all necessary and proper and don't anybody get, you know, uppity about it. It's just how it has to be. I don't know that we've ever had a perfect press. I know Thomas Jefferson back in his day, you know, railed against, you know, the distortions of the press. And there was some pretty ugly stuff that went on back then, editorializing and so forth. I think it was Jefferson who talked about, you know, if you were given the choice between uh, um, having no newspapers at all or having newspapers that were, were giving you distorted information, you'd be better off to have no newspapers at all. This is what I do know. If you are serious about seeing the world as it really is, you cannot take any source, whether it's the mainstream press, whether it's me, whether it's anybody else that you just happen to like, you cannot take that source at face value. You've got to be willing to do your own fact-checking, and you've got to be able to trust yourself. I know that there, there are concentrated efforts to convince you you're not good enough, you're broken, you're not smart enough. What are your credentials, okay? What, what makes you someone who could be capable of judging fact from fiction? And I'll tell you the answer. It's, it's much simpler than most people realize. How badly do you want to know the truth? That's, that's the answer to the question. You want to become a fact checker? Something just has to matter to you enough that you are willing to jump in, dig and understand it for yourself and not rely on somebody else to explain it to you like you're a five-year-old. Now, thankfully, there are growing numbers of people who are willing to do this. 
this program is in large part about encouraging people to step up and take charge of your worldview by questioning all of it, everything that comes at you. Other people will follow your example. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to take a moment here to thank SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This is great news for anybody living in or around southern Utah. If you uh, if you want to get into sewing or perhaps long-arm quilting or maybe you're into some really fancy stuff like embroidery, there are machines that uh, that can do the most remarkable creative work you have ever encountered in your life. Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah has them all. They sell them. They service them. They'll train you how to use the machines you buy from them. They have all the supplies that you need. And this is a family-owned business that's been in operation continuously since 1984. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. They're wonderful people. I love having them as sponsors of this show. So I'm asking you, to, from from the standpoint of letting them know that their message has reached your ears, if you or someone you know wants to get into sewing or is already into sewing, stop in and see them. They will definitely make it worth your while, and it would be uh, it would be very very uh, kind on your part to to let them know that uh, this show is reaching you and motivating you to do business with them. So here's something that's likely to poke your conscience just a little bit. I actually have a couple stories I want to poke your conscience, but this one really hit home. Paul Rosenberg has this deeply insightful essay on the why the bullying we witnessed as kids was the result of institutionalized abuse. In fact, he says, I wrote a version of this article seven years ago, but the problem, he says, unfortunately continues in strength, so I won't wait so long before posting again. Now, he says, I don't want to recall their suffering, but I also can't pretend it never happened. They were tormented daily over extended periods. I can only hope and pray that they recovered. They were children being abused, tortured, if we're going to put it bluntly, by other children. And it's still going on. And he gives examples. Carly was tormented mostly by other girls. They would surround her, laugh at her, point at her, mock her over years. She was told loudly and publicly that she had an ugly face, ugly hair, ugly clothes, and that she was stupid. This happened five days per week, nine months per year. Ron was tormented by the boys. He says, I still have images in my mind of him being forced to play baseball, surrounded by at least 20 boys who laughed at his every move. They laughed so loudly that you could hear them from the far side of the field. This was not limited to sports, and it forced his entire family to move. Deborah was humiliated with purpose and malice. Both boys and girls called her dog to her face. This went on for years until her family moved. Martin was surrounded by other boys and slapped around by them one after another. Deirdre was chased down by a group of boys who held her down and pulled off her underwear. Stanley had his physical appearance ridiculed on a daily basis for many years. He was occasionally slapped around and was criticized continually. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, all of this, if you haven't guessed happened in or around school. And he says, I made a quick count of 10 schoolmates of mine at fairly small schools who were tortured this way in my early years. In rough numbers, that means that for 5% of my schoolmates, walking into school meant walking into abuse. 
The rest of us had momentary torments, but nothing like what these kids experienced. And he says, I want you to understand something about this. I went to the very best public schools in the city of Chicago with some of the best children in the city of Chicago. Our neighborhood approached being a Pleasantville. Nearly all of us had stable homes and families, plenty to eat, family vacations, and so on. Nearly all of us went on to have stable and productive adult lives. And yet everything recorded above is true. These torments were applied hundreds of times per year to children. I'm going to pause here for just a moment and say, does your conscience kind of feel that pang? Mine does, because I recognize it too. And yes, sometimes I was participating in that teasing, in that mockery. So what did it do to these kids? Paul Rosenberg says, in cursory searches, I found little information on these victims. I didn't want to violate them by digging further. So I can't really say what happened to most of them. But he says, please, play, please, please pay close attention to the lists below. On the left are the effects of Abu Ghraib-style torture, courtesy of Wikipedia. And on the right are the effects of school bullying, also of uh, courtesy of Wikipedia. So, the effects of Abu Ghraib-style torture included post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, insomnia, nightmares, memory lapses, guilt, and shame. Now, the effects of school bullying include post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, suicide, anger, and excessive stress. He says, I can tell you from experience that guilt and shame should definitely be included in the school bullying list, as should almost certainly nightmares. So, yes, these children were tortured. To call it teasing or bullying is to injure them once again. People turn away from seeing this because school has stood in a position of worship, and combining the words torture and school is painful for them. But he says that pain, however, is not something that adults can bow to. We must see the truth of this. For millions of children, walking into a school building is walking into certain abuse. Now, maybe that raises the question in your mind. Okay, why does it happen? Well, Paul Rosenberg says, on this point, I will be blunt. The proximate cause of this is the forced grouping of compulsory schooling. Normal kids behave abnormally within that environment. Forced grouping breeds bad conduct. When you mix that with hierarchical domination, it just gets worse. And that's precisely what mass schooling does. Governments force children to attend these institutions where they must submit to authority. Learning from this example, children apply the same type of domination to others, seeking the top in the all-important order of hierarchy. So long as these systems continue, a large number of children will be persistently tormented. If a half-century of reform efforts haven't changed things, well, more reforms won't either. The system itself spawns the problem, and that problem is is beyond obscene. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. I'm sure we all either saw or participated or, you know, looked the other way while, while our schoolmates were being tormented or bullied. But it does kind of make you stop and think, well, what can I do? How could I, you know, how can I fortify my kids either against bullying or being the bullies? And I, I can't give you, a, you know, a one-size-fits-all answer. Honestly, I believe for people who are most serious about uh, countering this problem, 
probably the best solution is going to be get your kids out of school, homeschool them, or or get find a different way to 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 school them other than putting them in the government's hands and you know allowing the the system to do its job. For all the talk you hear about, well, if you homeschool your kids, aren't they going to grow up as you know some kind of social you know backwards twit? Gee, I don't know. How many well-adjusted kids have you seen come out of the public schools, right? How about those well-adjusted kids who engage in shootings in public schools? I mean, how'd that work out for them? My point being, you know what? You can you can be maladjusted in any setting. But it's the compulsory nature, I think, that really is what, what calls into question whether it's something that, that should be you know, just the default setting for society. Of course, we have to compel people to go to school. Of course, we have to bus them here and, and compel them to, to go there. I mean, if you're going to step up and take charge of your own worldview, this is one of those areas where you got to be thinking ahead for your kids, for your grandkids. What are you doing to protect them against this kind of manipulation? And it's interesting, there was a comment that someone had made on this particular essay uh, for from Paul Rosenberg, and the comment says, you know, I agree, remembering my own experiences, including my own teasing and torturing of other kids in a public school environment. I personally was ranged, raised rather as what's now called a free-range kid with wide discretion on the farm to go where I wanted without eternal parent control. And one of the effects that this individual says that they see is, for instance, uh, for example, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, having been bullied as a kid for being gay, choosing to devote his life to getting revenge by going into government where he could bully all of society. And this commenter says, I think that applies to just about everyone in government, particularly those who have that fierce desire to rule everyone. I've wondered about that myself. Some of the more abusive members of law enforcement, some of the the more uh, sociopathic politicians... I wonder if they were bullied and if they were tortured as kids and this is just kind of their way of paying it forward, you know, and, and getting, you know, getting back and trying to balance the scales in some uh, twisted way. I know it sounds like I, it probably sounds a lot like I'm, I'm making some kind of a character judgment on them. This much I do know. The bullying was wrong. Nobody deserves to be bullied and and they certainly don't deserve to turn turn around and become the bully writ large either. So while we can't turn back, you know, the hands of time, and we can't uh, demand that other people do this or do that, you know, to to meet our satisfaction. See, that's part of the problem: trying to control others. That's what bullies are trying to do. We can definitely control ourselves and set the example for how to treat other people. And I think a big part of that is standing up for those who are being bullied. In fact, I would say especially standing up for those who are being bullied by an unyielding state. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to mention lifesavingfood.com, one of my sponsors. You can find a link in my show notes, which will take you directly to their website. And from there, well, you just do a little bit of checking around. I bet you'll find something that would enhance your sense of being in charge of your life. Self-reliance, the ability to feed yourself, to provide heat, to provide clean water in times of emergency. 
It's not about necessarily preparing for the apocalypse. It's just about being prepared and having options when something unexpected pops up. Lately, it seems like we've got a lot of things that are kind of standing in line, (laughs) waiting for their chance to pop up. Well, I want to shift gears here and share with you uh, one of the best reality supplements that you're going to encounter today. This is from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And he talks about the origin and operation of the U.S. administrative state. Why is it important to understand this? Because as, as much as we want to pretend that, uh, you know, elections are going to change things, and by gosh, when the Republicans get in this fall, you know, it's all going to change. Hey, I want to believe it too. Just like I'm sure people want to believe that rain dance is actually, you know, it's uh, causing the, the weather to change for us. But I honestly think in both cases we're dealing with reassurance rituals which give the appearance of accomplishing something without actually making anything happen. And that administrative state, regardless of who is elected and who is deposed in the election, never really changes. Jeffrey Tucker writes, On July 2nd, 1881, only four months into the first term of President James A. Garfield, an angry attorney from Illinois named Charles J. Gittu shot Garfield in the torso at a Baltimore, Maryland train station. Now, Gittu had a motive. He was furious because he believed, due to his work for the campaign, that Garfield would give him a job in the new administration. But none was forthcoming, so it was revenge. Garfield died of the, mo- of the wounds months later. Now, it was a shocking thing. Congress immediately got to work figuring out how to prevent the next assassination. They had the theory that they needed to end the system of patronage in government so that way people wouldn't get mad and shoot the president. Not a very good theory, but this is how politics worked. And the result was the Pendleton Act that created a permanent civil service. The new president, Chester Arthur, signed the bill in 1883. It was done. The administrative state was born. Now, what Congress did not understand at the time was that they had fundamentally altered the American system of government. The Constitution nowhere provides for a permanent class of administrative overlords to whom Congress could outsource its authority. It nowhere said that there would exist a machine, technically under the executive branch, that the president could not control. The Pendleton Act created a new layer of statist imposition that was no longer subject to democratic control. It wasn't so bad at first, but then came the Fed, the income tax, and the Great War. The bureaucracy expanded in scope and power. Each decade, things got worse. The Cold War entrenched the military-industrial complex, and the Great Society built a massive civilian-controlling welfare state. So on it went until today, when it's not even clear that elected politicians matter much at all. As just one example, once Donald Trump figured out that he had been tricked by Anthony Fauci, Trump considered firing him. Then came the message, he cannot. The law doesn't allow that. Trump was surely amazed to hear this. He must have wondered, how is this possible? It's very much possible. The same status pertains to millions of federal employees, between 2 and 9 million, depending on whom one wants to include as part of the administrative state. Now this raises the question, is change even possible? The conventional wisdom is that November will bring dramatic change to the political landscape in Washington. Two years after that, the presidency will change from one party to the next. It's becoming very apparent that this administration and the party it represents are probably toast. It's just a matter of waiting for the next election. Thank goodness for democracy, right? The right question to ask is whether it will change anything. 
Now, you're not cynical if you doubt that much will change. The problem is baked into the structure of government today, which is not like what the Constitution's framers imagined it to be. The idea of democracy is that the people are in charge through their elected representatives. The opposite would be, for example, a vast and permanent class of administrative bureaucrats who pay no attention at all to public opinion, elections, or elected leaders and their appointments. And Jeffrey Tucker says, sad to say, but that's exactly the system that we have in place today. So let's talk about your real rulers. Jeffrey Tucker says the last two years have given us a chilling lesson in who really runs the country. It's executive-level agencies that are utterly unresponsive to anything or anyone, except perhaps the private sector forces of power that have revolving doors back and forth. The political appointees tapped to head agencies such as the CDC or Health and Human Services or whatever are basically irrelevant, marionettes about whom the career bureaucrats laugh if they pay any attention to them at all. Now, he says, years ago, I lived in some condominiums near the Beltway, and all of my neighbors were career workers for federal agencies. You name it. Transportation, labor, agriculture, housing, whatever. They were lifers, and they knew it. Their salaries depended on paper credentials and longevity. There was no way they could ever be fired, short of something impossibly egregious. Naively, he says, I early on tried to talk about issues of politics. And he says, they would stare at me with blank faces. I thought at the time they must have had strong opinions, but were somehow prevented from talking about it. But later, he says, I came to realize something more chilling. They didn't care in the slightest bit. Talking to them about politics was like talking to me about hockey teams in Finland. It's not a subject that affects my life. That's how it is with these people. They are utterly and completely unaffected by any political shifts. They know it. They take pride in it. He says, about the same time, for odd reasons, I found myself spending several weeks in the offices of the Department of Housing and Urban Development. I was doing research and had full access to all records back when something like that was actually possible for a regular citizen. It was a time when the old politically appointed director of HUD was on his way out and a new one was on his way in. He says, I was quietly working when I heard a series of loud crashes of glass in the hallway. I stuck my head out and watched. A guy was walking along, flicking pictures of the old guy off the wall and letting them crash down to the ground. About an hour later, a guy came along with a broom and swept up the mess. An hour after that, a guy came along and hung new pictures of the new guy on the wall. During the entire noisy ordeal, not one other employee of the agency showed the slightest curiosity about what was happening. They had seen this dozens of times and just didn't care. And he says, looking back, it's pretty obvious that this scene sums it up. This permanent bureaucracy is completely unaffected by any of the cosmetic changes in politics. So let's say that two million people occupy the permanent administrative state, excluding things like military and postal employees. The political appointments granted to the new president are about 4,000, and they come and go. Politics is mortal. The bureaucracy is immortal. Now, to be sure, the Republicans could do something about this problem, but will they? Nearly every elected leader has something to hide, and if they don't, the media can always make something up. This is how the administrative state keeps the political class in line, as we saw during the Trump years. So Jeffrey Tucker says, let's not be naive about the prospects for change. It's going to require far more than merely electing a new class of supposed rulers via the democratic process. The real rulers are too smart to subject themselves to the business of elections. 
Those are designed to keep our minds busy with the belief that democracy still survives and therefore it is the voters, not the government, that's responsible for outcomes. And he says, until the public figures this game out, genuine change will still be a very long time away. Meanwhile, the emerging economic crisis is going to unleash the administrative state as never before. Sorry, I was really hoping to end on a happy note today. (laughs) That's not going to happen. But I think that is some of the best analysis that you're likely to encounter. And this is one of the reasons why I am becoming more politically agnostic as time goes on. It's not a matter of, well, you're just throwing your hands in the air and admitting defeat. I'm recognizing that all the effort and all the moral energy that uh, that I could put into politicking and, you know, you know, trying to rah, rah, rah for this person or that person or this party or that party. It doesn't really change the nature of the problem. Regardless of the new faces that might be instituted and the new names that might go up on a plaque somewhere. That administrative state is so huge and so pervasive. It's part of the systemic structural rot that really threatens our country right now. Now, how exactly do you solve that? See, I don't have the answer to that either. I can tell you that at some level it's going to involve making all of that bureaucracy obsolete, irrelevant. I mean, for crying out loud, I saw some some poor uh, pathetic, you know, you know, the IRS is really backed up. Look at this room full of tax returns on paper that they're trying to catch up on. These poor employees. And I'm like, really? I'm supposed to shed tears for their misery rather than, than question whether they ought to exist in the first place? I know that's not very charitable. But let's face it, if I want something, I have to persuade people that this is the better way to go. If they want something, they send guys to point guns at me and threaten to hurt me. It's a, it's a very different dynamic, but you could probably see why I'm not down with that one, and I'm much more open to things that are done voluntarily and, and through persuasion instead. This is The Brian Hyde Show.